0: Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations, the power. The sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the tutors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tutor. I am Deb Hunter and today we have a great lineup for you. Doctors Lauren Mackay, Estelle Peronc, and Gareth Russell are in the studio. They're all masterminds behind The Blends, A Scandalous Family, which is airing on PBS August 28th. Let's just jump into it. Lauren, can you tell us your part in this? What role did you play? Oh, gosh, it's going back so long ago now. Um, I was involved in this series from
1: the very beginning, and it just began with a phone call from The lovely producers are Katie Green and Richard Carson Smith, and they had this idea that they had discussed, I think, with the wonderful Linda Porter, who ended up being the historical consultant of the series, that they wanted to do a series not just on Anne Boleyn, but on the Boleyn family and as a family, as something uh, human, something that we can all sort of relate to. And I have done my PhD on Thomas Boleyn, which I then turned into a book, which is called Among the Wolves of Court, the untold story of Thomas and George Boleyn, George being uh, Thomas's son and Anne's brother. And they, Richard specifically said that, you know, I've read the book and I've read the thesis and we want to make a series that really shows this, Thomas Boleyn and shows these kinds of relationships, because you haven't seen it on screen before. You haven't seen this kind of Thomas Boleyn, you haven't seen these human elements of the family. So that was very exciting and I, I couldn't wait to see my some of my research kind of translate onto screen and to see how they sort of dealt with the sort of more nuanced elements of the the family as a unit. And as also as a kind of a political power unit as well, They're, they definitely were a force to be reckoned with. So, yes, from the very beginning. And then I think uh, the producers started to look for some of the other brilliant minds, which is how, of course, they came to uh, my wonderful friends here, Gareth Russell and Estelle Perunk and oh, Dr. Owen Emerson as well, who is the curator at Haver Castle. So they really wanted to, uh, I guess, find uh, historians who... Really knew the the story and also wanted to be part of something different and new and fresh. It sounds fabulous. What was the name of your book again? Oh, uh, among the walls of
0: court: the untold story of Thomas and George Berlin and that's uh, out with Bloomsbury Academic. Thank you for that, Estelle. Could you introduce yourself and tell us the role you played in this, please?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Doctor Estelle Parhon, and um. um I'm specialised in tutoring uh, England, but not just uh, in the history around Europe at the same time. And um, my role in the series, I was contacted by the same great producers that Laurie Nose just talked about. And they contacted me saying that they were very um, interested in having someone who could talk more about the relationship uh, between the Boleyns and France. So I was really immediately very interested in uh, working on that because I've worked on Elizabeth uh, the First of England and the French, my latest book being obviously on uh, Blood, Fire and Gold, the history between Elizabeth and Catherine de' Medici. And I I thought that was a great idea because you can't really understand the rise and fall of the Bolines without understanding what's going on uh, with Europe and more particularly like about France. And I think that it was like very interesting for me to discuss what was going on between Anne and France, and about her education in France, and what was the, the French court look like. So I was really, I was thrilled to be contributing to that, and uh, and I'm I liked as Lauren said, that I, they wanted to bring new new things to light and to bring to make them more human. and And I think that they really managed. I think the show is really like uh, should, they, not only the importance of of the family, of the nobles and of all of this, but the importance of individuals. And I think that's um, that's absolutely brilliant.
0: Well, thank you for that. Did you depend on one of your books or a few of your books for the role you played?
2: So, yes, like, I mean, it was more uh, or less my knowledge of uh, the French uh, court. As a whole, that they were really interested in, and the fact that uh, they knew that I was a French expert at that from that period, so that's why like they really wanted me to to discuss, and um, and they knew that I obviously had, you know I teach courses on on the early modern period, and they knew that I had the background and and the expertise on that particular topic when it came to the English and the French courts. It sounds fascinating. I think that's actually what made it what makes it
1: so exciting is the um. The the slightly foreign elements that that both Estelle and Gareth uh, bring to it certainly the French court we don't see bef- uh, we haven't really seen before when it comes to Anne Boleyn at least we haven't seen the political uh, uniqueness of it and I think that's what Estelle did so brilliantly in this series is to really place Anne like. This is where she is, but also her relationship with her father in the French court. It was so wonderful to see it explained on screen and, and uh, Estelle did it so brilliantly. So I'm, I'm really excited for people to see it actually in the States because it's certainly a new perspective.
0: What is the structure of the show? We, we know it's in three parts, but can one of you kind of walk us through the setup for it, please?
3: Sure. Um, Well, the show is in three parts, and broadly speaking, it's chronological. So in part one, or episode one, we really see Thomas Boleyn's career. Thomas is sort of, you know, one of the great villains of Tudor history. That's how he's presented. If you open a conversation with people like us who love and and read about Tudor history a lot, you often get a really negative portrayal of Thomas Boleyn as someone who essentially exploited his his two daughters in a really um, horribly abusive way. And, and what Lauren's biography, Among the Wolves of Court, has proved, and what this TV sh- series shows is That is really based on later sources. That's not what people thought of him before. So part one looks at Thomas Boleyn, the real Thomas Boleyn, this, um, yes, ambitious man, but also a very talented man, a hardworking man, and a very well-connected individual. Part two then looks at the rise of the Boleyns in the um, generation of Thomas's children, Mary, George, and Anne. And then part three looks at the collapse of the Boleyns and the downfall of Queen Anne in 1536. So really, it's almost structured a little bit like a three-act play. You know, they always say with a three-act, in the first act you show someone climbing a tree, in the second act you show them up the tree, and in the third you kick them off. <laughs> and um, and that's what that's, that's the arc. Thomas going up, the children at the top, and the children falling out. And so that's our three episodes.
1: And Gareth, you're so right there when you say... um. Showing the ambition, you know, because I yeah. think what we wanted to show is ambition's not a dirty word. It is such a human emotion. We're all ambitious, and the Boleyns aren't unique in this in this ambition to rise at court. You know that the king is at the very center of everything. He is the font from which power and patronage is dispensed. How else? Are you going to get ahead at court? You have to have the king's favor and you have to make yourself indispensable and important and a part of this this you know well-oiled machine. And that's exactly what we see Thomas do. And it was, yes, as you say, it was it's it's important to say to really stress that. Like they're they're a very
0: typical family, and there's nothing wrong with ambition. It's something we can all relate to. That is so true. Gareth, what what about you? What was your role in the bullions?
3: Well, my role was really focusing on the other great families that they were connected to, and there were two. There was the Butler family, who were sort of the great, uh, one of the great Northern European aristocratic families. They more or less owned most of Southern Ireland, and Anne's grandmother, Lady Margaret, was the heiress to the Butler fortune and the um, Butler title. Obviously, every, you know, every show has to make a decision on what on what area they focus on. And the Boleyns decided to focus a little bit more on the English side of things rather than the Anglo-Irish or the Irish side of things. So in a shameless plug, I will say, if you head on over to my Instagram, uh, underscore Gareth Russell, I talk a little bit more about the Boleyns and their relation to the Butlers. And then what I did talk about more for the show was the relation to an equally um, powerful English aristocratic family who, of course, most of your listeners will have heard. It's impossible to shake a stick in Tudor, England without hitting at least one member of the Howard family. It's almost like trying <laughs> to find someone who isn't called Thomas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I had written a biography a few years ago called Young and Damned and Fair, which is about Catherine Howard, Anne's cousin, and um, Henry VIII's fifth wife. And so with this, uh, with this Project. I was brought in to talk about, you know, how did it work with the Howards and the Boleyns? You know, Elizabeth Boleyn, Anne's mother, was the Duke of Norfolk's sister. So she was half Howard. They did play a role. I it, it unfortunately meant I had to spend a lot of time talking about the third Duke of Norfolk, who is one of Tudor England's most staggeringly mm-hmm. unlikable individuals. And as I say in the show, that is some horse race to win. It's not exactly, a, you know, a miscongeniality competition of the court <laughs> at the time. So I really was focusing on who are the Belins related to, where does their money come from, which of their relatives help them. And actually, what what is so revealing about these relationships is the idea that the Berlins were essentially new money is something that can't really be substantiated. It maybe strips away a little bit of their their appeal to, to more modern audiences, but they they were related to uh, some of the great families of England and Ireland, and they were poised in 1515, when Anne was still very young, to inherit an earldom from the Irish side of the family. So that was my role, to put the Boleyns in this dynastic context, and having spent so much time researching the Howards for Young and Damned and Fair, hopefully I was able to contribute a few juicy tidbits about this um, important, indeed omnipresent, uh, family in Tudor England.
1: And Gareth, like Estelle, brings this incredible element I have to say, Gareth, because it was so great to see, you know, you talking about the butlers and the Howards, because you're right, no one, no, a lot of people don't really know about those connections. And I think American audiences might think that the historians involved had some kind of running bet (laughs) as to who could say the worst about Thomas Howard in the most diplomatic way, because that's what it looked like we were all doing. I don't know. I don't know if viewers will notice that. But anyway, but yes, I mean, uh, yeah, it it was just so great to see that particular aspect. I think it's just the especially the French court, the Irish Butler family, the um, the Howards, all these different aspects have made this series really feel so special.
3: If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast, There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you.
0: Gareth. You were talking about the Howards. Did you happen to bring up Catherine Howard? Was she involved in this in any way at all, even a mention?
3: No, it's too early for Catherine, I think. Um, You know, we're not even, I would imagine the cousins met at some point, but certainly there's no documentary evidence they ever did. We certainly didn't go too far into the, the many cousins that Anne had. Really, the focus was on her uncle, the Duke, and her mother, Elizabeth. So, no, we didn't get a mention of poor old Catherine. She, uh, at this point, was still uh, still pretty young. She probably was only about 13 or 14.
0: Did you draw from any of your books for your research?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was incredibly lucky to have, um, been, you know, to still have many of the research notes and, and information I uncovered for Young and Damned and Fair, my biography of, of Catherine Howard, because really... You cannot understand anyone in the upper classes of Tudor England without understanding the family. It's, you know, I spent two chapters at the start of that book, exploring, two and a half really, exploring Catherine Howard's family, who they were, why they matter, and what impact they had on its members' lives. And so in many ways that is true for Anne. Anne sort of had double the pressure and double the privilege. She had the Howards on one side, she also had the Butlers on the other. So she probably was in a more aristocratic position than Catherine was. I think people often think it's the other way around. Anne was w- was probably the recipient of more aristocratic connections, uh, privilege, and networking, to use a modern term, than Catherine would have been. Catherine's mother was a Culpepper. That wasn't a particularly prestigious family, whereas Anne, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably wasn't a countess in the country she wasn't somehow related to. About six of them were her aunts. Uh, So, I think in that—and then, obviously, she had most of the Irish aristocracy on her grandmother's side. So, in in that sense, I was really lucky that I had spent, you know, quite a lot of time analyzing the aristocratic networks and keeping track of who was who, because they kept track of who was who. You know, if you wanted to be a successful person in Tudor politics or Tudor England, you had to be a catalogue of good breeding, really. You had to remember who had married who, who was related to who, who owned what what manner's generated the best income it was it was you required you know the dress of a princess and the mind of a ceo really to rise up <laughs> here to to be to be that to be of significant uh power player at the Tudor court. And so I spent a lot of time trying to make sure I had a, a, a grasp on those aristocratic connections so that my readers, and then later for the Boleyns, the viewers, could often get a sense of what did these people see? What did Anne Boleyn and Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth Boleyn and Catherine Howard what did they see when they looked at their family and at these networks around them?
0: That's so very well put. And then Anne had the glamour of the European courts that her father had set up for her and her sister, so she had a lot more going for her than Catherine.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a French education and, and and partly at the Habsburg court as well. She she. I mean, I think Anne was probably naturally more intellectually inquisitive than Catherine was, and certainly you're right. There was a glamour and a chic appeal, and and that's one of the things that I think Estelle brought. To the show that we were so lucky with, which is this French, say French Connection, which is, <laughs> sounds like a product placement one. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, I mean, I think <laughs> just had to t- tap out of that. Um, yeah, this, uh, this uh, French pedigree, <laughs> whatever, whatever word I can use in lieu of, and a, and a French connection,
2: yeah,
3: yeah, I'm trying to find something in lieu of connection, it's not coming to me. Yeah, um, me too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, interestingly, where it built from was, you know, Lauren's book and Lauren's PhD had focused a lot on Thomas Boleyn as a diplomat. And those connections that he was able to use, which, as you say, Deb, he then did utilize to get his to get his daughter the best education possible by the standards of the time. And certainly one that gave Anne an an immeasurable advantage in certain areas. um, One was fashion. It was a very visual culture. Fashion mattered hugely. And she was called, even by one of her enemies, the glass of fashion. She was very, very well-dressed. She knew how to present Hmm. uh, a chic and elegant visual in the world of politics and, and high court diplomacy. She also, I think, had a better grasp on foreign policy than a lot of other people around her did because she had lived there. And so to go from Lauren's book into Estelle's expertise about the French court, it is important to remember that... This is someone who is, you know, Butler and Howard. She comes from these Anglo-Irish or aristocratic uh, connections. She is the daughter of a diplomat that then leads us to someone who has a French education. So hopefully between us, what we were able to offer and what the show hopefully offers is a series of building blocks in the story of a life. How a person is put together, how they are formed, family, education, Upbringing, and I and hopefully the show and our um, narrative and expertise and discussions and contributions to it will make that uh, clear and also interesting to viewers.
2: It's actually interesting when we think about the French and the you know having a good education and the importance of that and putting an ahead you know in terms of you know when we want to try to compare with Catherine of Aragon, for example. And I think sometimes we have to be a bit careful because. Obviously, I don't think that at that time there's any um, kind of interest in marrying Anne to to a king. And so, like, she's getting all of this experience, but I really believe that beyond the education, beyond all of this, she's massively influenced by two powerful French women, and one is queen and the other one is duchess, and then she's going to become a queen herself. So I'm talking about here about Louise of Savoy and um, Margaret of Angoulême and who's going to become Queen of Navarre. And it's almost like as if, in my opinion, it's almost as if, you know, Anne Boleyn was so influenced by strong women from an early age, you know, with Margaret of Austria as well, that, you know, they were like planting seeds in her for, you know, the terms ambition that you mentioned, Lauren, you know, not in a bad way, but in like, is this the life I want? Like, what kind of life I want? What kind of life I can get? But at the time, obviously, when she's in France and when she comes back to England in um, 1522, there's no, in her head, like, uh, really about, you know, uh, being better than Catherine of Aragon. And I I would like us to remember as well that Catherine of Aragon is raw blood. So you can't really do better than that. And if you're going to compete with that, you obviously need to be at the top of your game, as Gareth just said, you know, like, you need to be almost perfect. And uh, in many ways, she succeeded in that, I think.
1: And I think that's why why what Estelle sort of talked about in the series what what viewers will see, they, the French element is so important, not just because in terms of what influenced Anne, but who facilitated this position at the, at these courts and the most sophisticated courts in Europe. It comes back to Thomas Boleyn. And so the series kind of poses the question, um, what does this say about her father? that he would want this education for her to, to so that she can become the very best, I hate to sound so modern, the very best version of herself. So she can have this incredible education and upbringing. This isn't so she can marry a king or even attract the king's interest. This is about, what thomas wants for his daughter and so it's kind of turning already on its head these myth, you know the, the myths and legends about uh thomas Boleyn, the man and the father because it's really sort of saying well you know then, then why would he have done this all for his daughter if it's just to play her as a pawn clearly she's more than that clearly he sees her as more than that so I think it was it was really important that these elements that that, that Estelle brought in about the French court were just was so um,
0: important to, to actually see played out in the series as well. So would you say he was the epitome of a Renaissance thinker in educating his daughters and getting them involved in the European courts and then bringing them home to England to share that?
1: I mean, I I, I I'll, I'll I think Estelle and Gareth probably would agree, but I, I mean, I think so. I think and he's, he wasn't exactly one of the most unique in in of his time. I mean, we do have certain people in, in the court, like Thomas More, for example, who believe in educating their daughters and that the education of women is important. So certainly it does tap into certain traits of humanism, but it's, you know, I, I think that Thomas Boleyn comes from a family where the women are very important. They are powerhouses and uh, Gareth can talk at length about Thomas Boleyn's mother, Margaret Butler, and I, I hope he does um yeah, forever really because uh, she's such an incredible woman but i think this is the kind of man that thomas balloon is and it's i think it's because he has witnessed this himself and this is something that he wants to instill in his daughter and he's a place he's pl- well placed to do so uh uniquely positioned uh in you know within the courts of europe because he served there as an ambassador so he can as i said facilitate these kinds of connections that he wouldn't necessarily have gotten himself that generations of balloons before him wouldn't have been able to achieve, but he has secured it for his daughter.
0: So as a panel, do you believe Thomas was influenced by the women in his own family and that's what led to his education and I don't want to say pushing his daughters, but teaching them a new way of life that hadn't been available before?
3: I, ho- I
1: hope I haven't gone out on a limb here, guys. <laughs> what do you think? I know I would.
0: I, I would agree. I think
3: actually, the butlers, you know, the women, the family of Thomas's mother, there had been a long tradition of the women in that family having the right to own substantial property on their own. They owned the women, the head, of, the wife of the head of the butler family, owned in her own right. Uh, quite a lot of land in Dublin from which she generated an independent income, which was very unusual for the Middle Ages. Uh, and also the butlers were a family that really did push the arts I- I- among the, the men and the women. And they were tough. They were a tough family. I mean, Thomas's mother, Margaret, was nobody's fool, And she in particular, she had this <laughs> very long-running Olympian-level quarrel with her Irish cousin, Pierce. Over who should get the lion share of the inheritance, and essentially, Pierce wanted to to disinherit her because she was a woman, and said it can't. You know, the earldom can't be held by a woman. Therefore, none of the land and money should be. And Margaret said, "Well, okay, the earldom can't be, but it can pass through me to my son Thomas." And she seems to have been really, really close. To Thomas, yeah. and that he 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 pursued what he saw as his mother's birthright, and she named him after after her father, the last earls. The other thing I would say that I think is quite a touching testimony to Thomas Boleyn's relationship with his mother Deb, and to touch on how close he is to the women in his family. In her later years, we know that Margaret, Margaret Boleyn, born Margaret Butler, suffered tragically from long-term dementia and cognitive decline. And when she started to show those first signs, Thomas brought her home to Hever Castle and set her up there for the rest of his life. And she lived there protected, she wasn't sent away. She lived as you know I think any you know, many people who have dealt with dementia in their families will tell you that one of the best things for them is is repetition and familiar surroundings and in that sense, he, Thomas really did not just pick up the mantle of his mother's views on education and her birthright, but also when she was no longer, you know, in inverted commas, off use to him. This man who's usually presented as so Machiavellian was an incredibly dutiful, protective, loving son. And in comparison to how many people who face cognitive decline, or mental health problems. I know we can't really categorise dementia as that. I'm trying to think what the proper nomenclature for Tudor England would be. But people who faced cognitive decline or any sort of mental distress—that's uh, probably the correct term in Tudor England—they were not often treated lovingly by their families. Um, they were often treated. You know, they might have been put into the Our Lady of Bethlehem Asylum in London. There was a you know, there was a great deal of, of cruelty and ignorance surrounding mental traumas and um, mental distress in Shudder England and so to me it's it's really touching that Thomas Boleyn is both the product and the beneficiary of Margaret's views on their heritage when he's younger and he is also her protector at the end of her life when she's struggling with dementia so it's a fascinating and I would say quite touching relationship.
0: It sounds like it and something to dive into in the future so Thanks for bringing that to my attention. I, I want to ask Estelle quickly, what did you learn during filming and during researching your role? What did you learn that really surprised you about the Boleyns?
2: When uh, BBC contacted me, I started like, doing um, lots of research on the French, obviously, and I found some um, that I'm going to hopefully use in the future. But um, I think that what really surprised me, and it's not really much about, well, I guess it is about the Bullens, but um, it's about the relationship with the French ambassadors. It's about how good they were at almost pretend, like, l- bear with me when I'm going to say that, but you have to understand that, as I said, Anne Boleyn is competing with Royal Blood, which, you know, um, was... Catherine of Aragon. And in so many ways, I feel like the Boleyns were, and I was surprised by this, you know, when you have this idea of Anne Boleyn being more French than English, and she played on that kind of almost myth, right? Because obviously she she was not, she was, you know, she was English at the end of the day, but she had a French education that um, enabled her to to play kind of that card, and I was really also fascinated by the different relationships that the French ambassador decided to have with her. And what I mean by that is nothing sexual or sensual or whatever like people might think, but uh, because people are French, right? So obviously we have the bad reputation, but it's not what I'm talking about. Uh, it's more or less like the fact that some of them were really. Uh, fond of her as a person. They really praised her for who she was as an individual. And others were really not great fans at all. And you can see that when at the end she's during her fall, like you can see who were behind her and could not express their true thoughts. And the ones who were like, well, you brought that down to you. You know, like you you went to bit, you know, she's a bit like uh you went a bit too close to the sun, didn't you? And now you're burning. And I felt like uh, some of them saw it, not saw it coming, but some of them um, didn't feel I think no one saw it coming, but I feel like some of them were not that surprised or uh, well, almost like thinking, well, you know, it happened to her because she was too ambitious. She was this, she was too that. So I think that's what surprised most is the complexity of the relationships and um, how the French are going to react or not react and I was, re- I'm, I'm definitely uh, fascinated by that, and want to bring that more to the public in the future. So fingers crossed, guys.
0: That's a great analogy, by the way. Got too close to the sun.
2: Yeah, because I think it's like you know, not many thought that she would be able, like, to pull it off right like because come on like she's marrying a king and she's not blood. she's not bringing a dynasty with her and actually i think that's what she's basically saying she's saying actually i am bringing a dynasty to you because i i was brought up in france and she's probably saying i do have special relationships and uh, connections you know again gareth uh, (laughs) (laughs) connections with france (laughs) and so i think we have this this type of woman who's like I know, I know the French court so well. I'll be so, you know, you, you're going to depend on me. And and actually, she didn't realize that men don't like being dependent on women, especially in the sixteenth century. Right? They're like, oh my god, who does she think she is? Mm-hmm. And uh, and even Henry VIII was probably, you know, in a way, she was brighter, smarter, um, and and everything that you know, Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII were not. And she was charming. She was a much more charming than these two bastards. Like, sorry. Um, so like, <laughs> like uh, sorry, <laughs> so, so we really have like this woman who was who could do it she could do it all. She could do it all. And also it's really because she was brought up in an environment where she saw how women were treated. And then Francis the first court, women were treated differently. Okay. I'm not talking about sexual uh, treatment here, because obviously we could discuss that. Francis was a pig. No discussion about that. No dispute about that. But when it came to uh, power, he did give a lot of power to both his mother and sister, in so in many different ways. And so I think that she realised really early on that it was possible to be to be uh, empowered by even by men. But what she didn't take into account, it was not Henry VIII's style at all. And for Francis, it was mostly because one was his mother and the other one was his sister. Uh, he was not like that with his wives. But in so many ways, he did empower other women, uh, especially his um, mistresses, and... Um, But again, I mean, it's also fascinating the relationship of Francis and his women. I mean, if you really think about it, like the way he was with women and the different and and in in a way how different it was in the 16th century, how strange it was. Many, many ambassadors, Venetian ambassadors, you know, English ambassadors are are, going to be a bit um, surprised. Of the power that, uh, Wies de Savoy and, and, and Margaret are gonna have. And I'm not talking about Claude, Claude de France because obviously she doesn't. She doesn't. She's the woman who's, who's here to produce heirs. And I think that's where Anne, like, kind of forgot <laughs> what, you know, when you're a queen concert, like, that's, that's gonna be your place before being like, it's once you're a mother to, to a king, like, you have a, a different relationship. But when you're the wife of a king, you're treated like shit. Like, you know. Look! Look at all the the women like Catherine de Medici and Henry the Second. She only gets to power and really powerful and rise to power when she's a mother of kings, not before. Like it's really hard for her. I mean, towards the end, I'm sorry, I'm so rambling here, but towards the end of Henry the Second's reign, you do see Catherine de Medici like rise to power a little. He's starting to trust in her, but it took like decades for her to get to to get there. And Anne was already there because she was already so much smarter than these people on the privy council and she thought my!" and she was not humble about this i think she made it too clear and she made too many enemies because of it but you know what it's fine because you are who you are at the end of the day and you shouldn't be apologizing for being smarter and being and being better and i'm sorry i'm gonna stop right there and i'm gonna let someone else talk (laughs) oh
0: yeah you do not have to be sorry (laughs) that's amazing yeah you do not have to be sorry at all that that was wonderful. I just felt
2: passionate about about this because I think it's women. We're, we're, it's very important <laughs> for women to understand that you know we do have the right to have a voice and to have ambitions. Even if, if we go too close to the sun, and so what? She should not have lost her head for it.
0: Yeah, it, you're so right. And with her education, her polish, her background, her fashion sense, I, I just feel like she came to court, and there was. N- No way Henry could have missed her. He had to be completely dazzled. Talk about being too close to the sun. He had probably never really met a woman like Anne Boleyn.
2: No, there was no one else like her. There was no one else like her. And that's why we have Elizabeth I. (laughs) There's no one else like her. Boom. (laughs) And that's why
0: we have Elizabeth I. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love love that. that. Yeah, that ties it all in together. That's perfect. Well, Lauren, what did you learn in your research for the show and in filming? And you play such a huge role in this, but was there one thing, two things, three things possibly that surprised you or that you didn't know before?
1: Uh, I didn't know, but certainly I... I first, thing, I mean, it wasn't these uh, specific things, but just rather um, a, a number of, of elements and details which I found were really interesting. And I suppose one interesting element was just how positive uh, so many of the historians were on the series when talking about Thomas Boleyn, because Thomas Boleyn has been so systematically denigrated over the centuries. And... It, it, and sometimes it's simply because uh, historians are writing about Anne Boleyn and they they sort of toe the line, is how I like to say it. They follow the traditional stereotype about Thomas Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn is, you know, she's either a pawn of her father or she's a chip off the old block and is like her father, you know, scheming or ambitious. And so suddenly in this series, we have uh, different historians and I think that's what makes it so refreshing. and. They are overwhelmingly positive, or at least far more nuanced, and I think that's that really makes it quite special. Estelle and Gareth and uh, Owen and gosh, uh, you know Leander Delisle, some of the, the these great uh, names, and they've they've all done their research, and these are the conclusions that they have come to as well. And so I think that was wonderful to see. So we don't see the same repetition of these myths and uh, these. Uh, rather outdated ideas about Thomas Boleyn. But it was also, and I think we've already touched upon it, but it was lovely to see the more recondite elements of the Boleyn story. And that is, yes, bringing in France and bringing in the European education, but bringing in what it meant for Anne to have uh, uh, that education and why that's important when we talk about Thomas and Anne and why Thomas Boleyn or the Boleyn family and the Boleyn lineage is so important because they don't just pop up out of nowhere. They are part of their own family dynasty, which has risen generation by generation. They have married over three generations into three very powerful, as Gareth said, powerful and uh, ancient dynastic families. And it goes back, I don't think we mentioned them, but we have the Boleyns marrying into the Hu family, they're prestigious and noble and ancient, and then the Butler family, and then the Howard family. So this is a, a pattern of spectacularly good marriages, and that sets the Boleyns up for uh, a great uh, you know a great career at court it sets Thomas Boleyn up for a great a-, a career at court so to have these kinds of connections to have this family lineage that's important because it it, it goes away from that narrative of oh well Anne Boleyn is an upstart she's the daughter of a nobody uh, the Boleyns were nobodies that's just incorrect and I think it was it's high time that we that historians turn around and say, no, actually, this is the lineage and this is the real story about the Boleyns. Uh So it was definitely wonderful to see that. And I guess also just to see some of my research on screen, I mean, the, we decided to finish the very end of episode three with the very last scene from my book. And so to actually see that play out was rather emotional for me because I had never, I had never anticipated what it might look like. And then all of a sudden, the historians who were narrating it bringing so much heart to what thomas boleyn might be feeling in these in these in these final scenes and i just thought my gosh even i've never given it that much humanity i've never contemplated it with with so much emotion so it was just it was just really really wonderful to see it translate and the actors who play the boleyn the boleyn family are just I'm sure Gareth would agree they're so they were so perfectly uh chosen Max Dowler plays possibly my favorite Thomas Berlin of all time now he just absolutely captures Thomas for me and it's um it's wonderful now because even when I I I go through my research about Thomas Berlin now Max is in my mind because he's just he's just so spot on so it, it was it's I guess that's what those are the most in- interesting elements of it for me.
2: Yeah, and Raphael, Raphael is the perfect angle as well.
0: Oh, and Raphael Cohen, she's fabulous. Yes. This just sounds like such a refreshing, vital new take on the family. I'm so looking forward to it. And Gareth, what, what did you take away from this?
3: Well, I suppose it was watching the actors, really. Obviously, you know, we we knew the history before and it was such a pleasure to to return to talking about it and to look at it from the perspective of the Boleyns. But there's something really moving about seeing scenes that were shot, which they are for the series at Hever Castle, the Boleyns' old um, family home. And to see uh, Raphael and Max walking around and you know, riding horses into the courtyard and and looking out the windows that Anne would have looked out and, and to have you know the actress playing Mary Boleyn and the actor playing Thomas Boleyn go out with Falcons into the to the gardens at Heber Castle. what it what I probably took away was from seeing how moving it is to have a screen depiction of domestic moments between a very influential and famous family, but actually in the places where they themselves would have experienced them. So that for me was a was a special uh, experience of which to be part of.
0: that That would be. Estelle, your books, what are you working on right now? Can you share that with I us? I can't tell.
2: I can't say. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a secret. <laughs> it's a secret. But I think if you listen to me and by my passion, you probably, you know, can, can have a good guess. But I can't say it. I can't say it. It's really, super annoying. But there will be an announcement, I'm sure, very soon. And I'll be able to share with the world what I'm working on next. And I cannot wait because it's so exciting.
1: But your but your current book ties in so wonderfully because it it
2: has uh, Thomas Boleyn's granddaughter exactly and so like that's quite that's quite like uh, that's where my love lies really about the relationship between the French and the English and I think it's mostly because it's my two nationalities now so like I, I, I feel really close to both countries and I love working on them both so yeah so definitely.
0: Well, thank you for that, and we'll be looking for you on social media to find out what your announcement is. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Estelle. And Lauren, can we ask what you're up to? Uh, Yes, I've moved away from the Boleyns briefly. Um, I'm
1: currently in the middle of writing uh, my fourth book, which is called Thunder Through the Realms, uh, Five Empires and the Making of the Early Morning World. And it's basically the story of Five empires. i uh, feel <laughs> very self-explanatory. I think the beginning of uh, the 16th century, and that is Henry VIII of England. It is Francis I of France, Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, and the uh, Eastern counterparts: the Ottoman Sultan, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, and the Persian Shah Tahmasp the First. And it's really the fact that these five men assumed the mantle of kingship roughly at the same time but it's it's not their differences that i find so fascinating it's the similarities and the way in which they intersect and I find it just so fascinating because there's always been this otherness about the Ottomans and the Persians, and yet the the, the connections between them, I think, just really, uh, really, really show how they, they're all they're all very much human. They're facing the same issues. They have issues with their mothers. They have issues with their women. They have issues with their advisors. They all want to be seen as the epitome of the Renaissance. And it's so interesting because it, it's it's how the Eastern empires want to be seen and regarded by the West, and how the west is so in love with the east even though they'd rather die than admit it so it's just about the 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 relationships between the empires between the men uh, between the kings as well and i'm in the i'm still writing it and i have my editor breathing down my neck so uh if she's listening i'm it, it's coming it's on
0: its way <laughs> well speaking of ambition five empires that's not ambitious at all is it
1: I, you know sometimes i think i actually channel thomas Boleyn in my in my ambition for for different things. Um you know it's definitely it's an ambitious it's ambitious, but I think it, it's you know when writing about these kinds of broad topics you you have to sort of keep it keep it narrow as well and and link it thematically. You can't I can't write the history of five empires. I would be here all day. But uh certainly just you know a snapshot really of, of what's important.
0: It sounds brilliant. How can we find you on social media? Uh Someone might have to correct me if I get my own handles wrong. I think on Twitter, I think um, uh,
1: Regina underscore Saba on Twitter. And uh, from there, I'm also on Instagram, Lauren Mackay underscore 16th C. I think that's what it
0: is. Um, So you can find me there. Uh, I'm definitely very active on on Twitter as Gareth and Estelle can attest. Well, thank you, Lauren. And Gareth, what about you? What are you up to?
3: Well, I have a new book coming out in the States on November 1st with Simon and Schuster. Slight departure from the 16th century, but not from the world of Queens. It is a new biography of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and it's called Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Sparkling Life and Fizzy Wit of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And it's a collection of 101 anecdotes that I collected from her private letters and from people who knew her, some of her friends, some of her relatives, uh, some people who didn't like her very much. Uh, And so I hope it'll be a great uh, read for fans of the Crown, Downton Abbey, anyone who enjoys a good historical anecdote. And then next year, my book, The Palace, is coming out, which is a history of Hampton Court. And it tells a different story in a different room with a different decade, different person moving from the time of Henry Seventh right the way through to Elizabeth II. So I'm very excited about that. And you can find me on Instagram at underscore Gareth Russell, all one word.
0: Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you, Lauren, Estelle, and Gareth. Please come back when your next books are published. And thank you for giving us insight into the Boleyns, a scandalous family. And we want to especially thank the listeners for tuning in today. And please subscribe to the All Things Tutor podcast, leave a review, and have a great day, everyone. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you,
0: Deb. You've been listening to All Things Tutor. My thanks go to listeners my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the TheDebATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.